Uh, let's pray. God, we thank you for, for yet another opportunity to stand before you as your people. Lord, we thank you for, for your presence in this place. We thank you for what you've done for us, and you've allowed us another opportunity to give into your kingdom. Lord, we ask that you bless this time. Remove the blinders from our eyes and the chains from our hearts. Let us see more of you, God. It's in your son's precious name that we pray. Amen. This goes out to the heaviest heart. Good morning. Everybody doing okay? We're entering into a new series. Easter is right upon us. This is Palm Sunday where we celebrate the Holy Week's beginning where Jesus rode triumphantly in to Jerusalem. And uh, we want to do that by just talking about the hope that is in Christ. Many of us, if we live long enough, we will run into a place that's a roadblock or a dead end in our life. Things don't seem like, things are going fine and all of a sudden, bam, something hits us, whether that's um, something with your family, something in your life, something with a child, something is just a roadblock or a dead end and it seems like all hope is lost. But I want you to know something, it is not over yet because there is great hope in Jesus Christ. And in this study, we're going to look at people who had hit that roadblock. They hit that moment of dead end, but then they had an encounter with Jesus that changed everything. So we got a Bible this morning. Um, we're we're going to turn to Luke chapter 19, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, that's all right. It'll be on the screen for you in a second. Luke chapter 19, verse 1. Are you guys all right out there? Everybody good? All right, good. I'm glad to hear, hear that. Luke 19, verse 1. Let's read this together, and then we'll continue. He entered into Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. I want to stop here just for just one second. If you have been in church at any time in your life, or you have, or you, especially as a little kid, and you were there for like vacation Bible school or whatever, you would immediately, when we hear Zacchaeus, you were thinking, he's a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Okay, that is going to be right in your wheelhouse. If not, you're going to learn about this wee little man. So this guy, Zacchaeus, he was a chief tax clerk, he was rich, verse 3, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on the account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small of stature. He was short, I can relate. Verse 4, so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him for who he was, see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must say to you, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and he came down and he received him joyfully. Verse 7, the haters are going to hate. And when they saw it, they, the Pharisees, they grumbled. Look, he's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. 
Zacchaeus stood and he said to the Lord Jesus, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I'll give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. You know, we need hope. We need it in our lives, but sadly, it seems like the world is devoid of hope. I was talking just a few minutes ago about the news and how we don't like to watch the news because it's just nothing but bad news. It doesn't seem like there's any good news getting through and how depressing it is, and there just doesn't seem to be a lot of hope in the world. However, there are some little glimpses that kind of come through from time to time, but usually those are small and fleeting. What I mean by that is this. Think about the hope that you have in payday. You know what I'm talking, you know payday, not the candy bar, no, not that. Payday, your funds are getting low. You want to buy things, purchase goods, go have something to eat, maybe go see a movie, but those funds are going low. You know payday's coming, there's hope in payday. And then all of a sudden, that direct deposit hits, cha-ching, you got money, and then somehow it disappears. And you're like, what happened? So then you go from hope, yeah, I got money, to oh, no, I don't have any money. And what are you doing? You're hoping again for payday. Payday is a hope, but it's small and short-lived, right? Just like spring. Now, spring is awesome. We've been waiting for spring. For spring to arrive, I mean, we had to go through the winter. Now, our winter wasn't bad here. And, and so that means bugs will be the size of cats, okay? They're going to be like giant eagles and, or ravens or crows, and they will descend on us and take us away, okay? There will be mosquitoes that are gargantuan. But you think about it, most times when the winters come, what do you want? I cannot wait for spring to get here. And so we have some new life come. The trees won't be bare anymore. The new life comes. And then before you know it, just like just because of where we live, it's spring and nice and wonderful and lovely for like a week. And it freezes. It gets nice again. And then it gets hotter than the face of the sun. And so what do you have? It's a, it's a hope. Yeah, I can't wait to spring. When spring gets here, I'm going to lose a little weight when spring gets here. I'm going to get a tan when spring gets here. And then spring comes like, now it's hot. I don't want to go outside. All of our hopes in this world are short-lived, but there is an unquenchable hope in Jesus. And so when we hit a roadblock in life, when something happens to us and we hit a dead end and all hope seems to be lost, we do not give up because it's not over yet. There is unquenchable hope in Jesus. So as we look at the life of Zacchaeus, I want to show you things. I want to show you two of our common roadblocks that we hit in life, those places that we hit and we, we, we think it's over. We think it's a dead end. Those two things are going to be, um, be poor decisions on our part or other people's part and sin. And so we're going to see that in the life of Zacchaeus. Those are really huge roadblocks that we run into, and they stop us, and they, they, they drain us of hope, but there is hope. Jesus enters into a situation like that with Zacchaeus, where he's a man, because of his poor decisions and his sin, that he is at a crisis point, and at his lowest, Jesus comes. So if you would, we're going to go back and look at the text, and I want to show you the, the two great roadblocks that hit Zacchaeus in his life, and it's not his height. It can be seen in verse 2. The two roadblocks, it says there was a man named Zacchaeus, and it wasn't that his name was weird. Here it is. The first thing is he was a chief 
tax collector. Now, tax collectors of the time, they were working for the Roman government who were in charge or who had, who had taken over and dominated Palestine and Israel. And so what's happening is the, the tax collectors, they would work for the Roman government. And they were considered and seen as people who had betrayed their very own people and worked for this government that, that basically was oppressing the people of Israel, God's people. Secondly, he was a tax collector. How many of us just love to pay taxes? The day is coming where we will have the comeuppance that we deserve, okay, or that was coming to us. We will get taxed. We will get taxed. April 15th or 16th or whatever, whatever day it is, the tax man comes. And we always love to get that paycheck and be like, oh, good. I'm glad I gave that to the federal government. That's fantastic. So not only was he working for a traitorous, treacherous and traitor or a dominant government, he was also at this place where he was making money off that. And so obviously people didn't care for the tax man very much. On top of that, it says that he was a chief tax collector. So he was very good at that. And he would have had people underneath him that would help to pay the taxes. Now, one of the ways they would make money as a tax collector was that they would, they would basically charge the taxes that the Roman government said were okay. And then they would charge extra on top of that to make their money. You ever bought a ticket, at ticket on Ticketmaster before? I'm not hating Ticketmaster, but this is the real, real deal. You see the, the ticket price, like 35 bucks, 45 bucks. Some of those big shows, you know, like 135 bucks, okay? And you're sitting in the nosebleeds for that. And then you're like, I could pay that. And then all of a sudden, you start clicking through the buttons on Ticketmaster, and you're going to buy a ticket to the show, and before you know it, the cost is almost $200. You're like, what is that about? And they have all the little extra fees, like, you know, shipping and handling, though they're not shipping anything. You're printing it off a computer. They have all these fees. Anybody ever had that happen before? Like, I thought I was going to pay this. Now I got taxes, and I got fees, and I got you know use of computer fees. It's my computer. What are you talking about? <clears throat> and that's that's kind of what you see here. These guys would add the extra fees as a tax collector to make their money. So first off, he's made some poor decisions and career choices. For him, working for the Roman government as a tax collector was being treacherous to his people. Because the Romans were an occupying force, and he was working for the bad guys. So he had made some poor decisions that probably made him a hated person in the community. One of those people in the community, when they walk by, he said, did you hear the story about Zacchaeus? I know that doesn't happen in Hartsville. Yeah, they, were at the, they were at the Palestinian, you know, Piggly Wiggly, if you will. And like, did you know about Zacchaeus? Did you hear what he did? He would became the town, he became the one probably the town would gospel about. And not only that, he was good at it, he was the chief tax collector. So he had made some poor decisions that had led him to a point where he's willing to climb a tree to find some answers. Secondly, we that the Bible says and points out very clearly that not only was he a chief tax collector and he had a bunch of guys working for him to collect taxes, and it's kind of organized crime, if you will. I don't know how he got the taxes. He had a posse. Maybe like, listen, you're going to pay or we're going to hurt you. Okay, maybe that was how it was. We don't know. But we have this next thing. It says, this next phrase that says this, he was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Now, how would he have become rich? Well, we could venture to guess, given the details we've given here, he became rich by being a tax collector, which he's very good at because he had a posse of them. And how was he making that money? He was making that money by extorting other people to pay more than was owed. So he was so good at it that he had become rich in extorting and stealing from people, basically, and taking advantage of them. So not only is Zacchaeus a person who has made some poor life decisions, 
but he is also a person who has sinned against his fellow man. And now what's happened is he has come to a crisis point where his poor decisions and sin have kind of weighed in on him and come down upon him, that he has to do something about that. The weight of this burden that he is carrying is too great, and he is seeking a solution. He's at a place. And I want you to know something. Here, let, me, let me tell you this. The conviction of God, which is different from the guilt that some people try to like make you see. The conviction of God is a good thing because it shows you your need. And so this guy is at a point of need. And you're saying, well, Matt, where do you get this idea? Where do you get in this point that, that he is in need? Well, go on in the passage with me in verse 3. And seeking to see who Jesus was. Now think about this. He, in taking the job as a tax collector, was working against God's people, Israel. And most people thought that, okay, because he's working for this occupying force. It's like if another government came and took over our country and somebody would work for them to help help kind of oppress the people of the United States. That's how bad it would have been. And so, obviously, he did not care so much for the things of God or the people of God. Pretty evident by his career choices. But now, he was at this place where he's seeking out a Jewish rabbi teacher. And he wants to see him. And he wants to see him pretty bad, because in verse 3 it says, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on the count of the crowd, he could not, because he was small of stature. The Bible tells us a few, just a few handful of details about him. Don't you love that the fact that one of the details the Bible tells us about him is that he's short? Fantastic. Hope for short guys everywhere, okay? So here's the thing. He tells him he's short, and so he can't see Jesus. The crowd is around. They hear Jesus is coming. A crowd gathers. They're trying to see Jesus. Zacchaeus is doing the jump thing, okay? He wants to see Jesus, but his, his height is keeping him from doing that. So what does he do? Verse 4, so he ran on ahead of where Jesus was coming, and he climbed up in a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Now, you, if you've heard this story before, and many of you have, this is a popular story. I said there's even a children's song about it. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Most of us think that is totally normal. Because we heard the story. Of course, is he? Of course he climbed up in a tree because he's short. Well, this guy was rich. The Bible is very clear that he was rich. And usually rich people showed they were rich by the way they dressed, especially in this time period. So we have a guy who is dressed in fine clothing shimmying up a tree. That's weird. That's strange. It would be akin to this. If you go to downtown Nashville and maybe go to like a, a really fancy place of business, you see a banker who's in a nice three-piece Armani suit, you know, one of those suits that costs more than my car probably, and you see that guy all of a sudden just shimmy up a tree in downtown Nashville. That's weird, right? You'd be like, whoa, what is happening here? There is a, there is a desperation point. If you're at this point, you're a well-to-do citizen in the sense that you have money and means, and you are climbing up a tree, it shows that something has gone wrong in your life, and you are desperate for some answers. Did you think that makes sense? That's a pretty radical step. I, it just never crossed my mind. When I was a little kid, it would cross my mind maybe to climb a tree. As a 34-year-old man or soon-to-be 34-year-old man, I don't ever think about, you know, I should climb that tree. I'm just going to climb that tree right there. But this guy's a rich guy. You imagine his, in all his fine duds, he climbs up that tree. What does it show that he has seen, he has reached a point where his sins have weighed in on him, and he knows that he is in desperate need of something different. And he's heard about Jesus, and he wants, he thinks Jesus is the answer. Now, I want you to know something else. 
Those are the things. His sin and his poor choices that led him to this place. This place of desperation, this crisis point. Where I got to find somebody to help make this change. Now, Jesus enters into the scene in the next couple of verses, and I want you to see this very clearly. Jesus comes to this man who has reached a crisis point because of his poor decisions and sin. He comes to him, and he offers him new life. There is new hope in Jesus. There's an unquenchable hope he offers to this man who's in desperation, who shimmied up a tree just for the hopes of seeing Jesus. Look in the next verses. Verse 5, it says, and Jesus came to the place. There's an emphasis in the Greek language on, on, in this sentence, okay? And so this idea of Jesus coming to a particular place, the place. I got to coach my son yesterday, assistant coach my son in T-ball. And he's in the four- and five-year-old T-ball league. It's like herding cats, okay? Their kids are doing everything, okay? You're like one of them walking out into the back of the field. One of the kids tried to run out of the dugout on us. Um, Judson was kind of, he had gotten tired. He had been out in the park for a lot of the day. And so he was kind of just laying on the ground and he was playing second base. So he's over here. So what we decided to do, and we've done this a lot in practice, is we drew a circle in the sand. You know what we told him? Stand right here in this place. After the play's over, come stand right back in that place so you'll be in position to catch the ball. That's the idea here, that Jesus came to the place. Like there was an X marks the spot. There's a divine mission here. And there's several other reasons I can show you this in this text, that Jesus is on mission. It says this, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up. There's a dude, <laughs> a well-dressed, rich guy in a tree who was vertically challenged. And Jesus came to the place at that particular sycamore tree, and he looked up. And then he says this, said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Zacchaeus, hurry. It's an interesting word. Why, why hurry? Why hurry and get down? Why? Well, when do you say hurry? Like this morning, we, had, we got two services today. You obviously know that because you're at the 11 o'clock one, okay? We had one at 9. We had one at 11. We had to get here a little bit early. And I don't know if you guys, if you, if you get to be around me a while, I hate to be late. And I always have this sense of like, let's go, let's go. And my son is not like that. And my wife, she always wants to get everything just right. And I'm just like, get in the car! Okay? I'm trying to be godly, okay? I mean, it's Sunday morning, right? I got to preach. So I'm like, everybody, let's go, let's go, let's go. Why was I wanting to hurry them? Because we had some place to be. There was an appointment to be kept. I want you to see this. This language in this, this text is pregnant with meaning. And it's, when he's saying hurry, it's like, there's, it, this is an appointment I have. See, Jesus is fully man and fully God. And in being fully man, he kept the law perfectly where we can't. We've, we fail in all sorts of ways, and he succeeded in every way. He was tempted like we were, but he was without sin. And so he followed God's law and command and, and moving to the T. And so in doing that, he was keeping a divine appointment. There was an X on the ground, a circle, if you will, that said you are going to be on this date and time. You're going to meet a guy who is messed up and broken by his poor decisions and sin. You're going to encounter him, and you're going to bring grace. That's the divine will of the Father executed by the Son. So he's saying, hurry. He's like, hey, come on. Time's ticking. 
God, this is God's plan. And then he says this, just to further emphasize to you that it's here in the text, I want you to look in verse 5. It says this, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry down, come on, we got time to keep, bud. Let's get, get, let's get to your house. Come down, for I must stay at your house. Must. I must. If you want to make people feel really uncomfortable, don't invite yourself over. <laughs> Say, I must come to your house. That would be uncomfortable and awkward, wouldn't it? I must come to your house. It, it's, it's an imperative. Okay, Jesus says, I must come to your house. This is all the divine working of God. I want you to know this. Long before Zacchaeus shimmied up that tree, God was providing for his need. God was planning to meet him there. God was at a place where he was seeking out this man who was of poor estate, whose decisions had shipwrecked his life, whose sin was dragging him down to hell. And the Lord made provision, and Jesus executed the will of God to bring salvation to this man's house. And at the end of this passage, remember what Jesus would say, we're going to go back to it. He said, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Here's a beautiful, here's one reason why you can have unquenchable hope, because Jesus has come to seek and save the lost. Hear me. The Lord uses his people to preach his gospel, to come hit you at a point of need so that you can hear the good news and so that people will repent and believe. And so here's the thing. God is not deaf to your sins and your failings. He knows and he seeks out those to show his grace to. And if you're in this place this morning, you may think it's by your own decision, but I want you to know something. There's a lot of things that went into you being here. For example, you could not be here because you got a stomach bug, because that's real, folks, and it is taking this town by storm. Your car could not, your car could not work. Could have got a flat tire. Could have had a big, giant family argument. I know those never happen on Sunday morning. You could have had many number of things that would kept you from being here, poor health, anything like that. But here's the good news. You got here. You came here. The Word of God is being preached here. And so here's the thing. There are divine appointments anytime you hear the Word of God. He is working. He is meeting. He is, as Charles Spurgeon calls, calls God, he is the hound of heaven. He seeks out. He doesn't leave us there. He seeks out sinners. And he did that. He has a divine appointment with Zacchaeus to, to show grace and to bring forgiveness. And I want you to know something. You are not too far out there that he does not care. The evidence that you are here at a Bible-believing, teaching church is because God cares for you and he's reaching out for you with this message of unquenchable hope that there is salvation in Christ. So just hear that. Just know that is true, that the Lord is seeking to save the lost and so you are not unnoticed by heaven. That's why we can have unquenchable hope. He knows us. He knows our poor decisions. He knows our sins. And then here's the good news. While we were yet sinners, the Bible would say in Romans, Christ died for us. Oh, there's good news for you that though far out you are, you're hearing grace and you can respond to that grace today. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. We have hope that God is not deaf or indifferent to us. He's seeking us out. Secondly, I want you to know this, that Jesus lifts the weight of our poor decisions and sin. Jesus lifts the weight of our poor decisions and sin. Look at me in verse 7. Actually, verse 6, it says, so he hurried, Zacchaeus, he hurried and he came down and received him joyfully. Think about this for a second. If I went to you and said, I must go to your house today, well, let's, 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 let's flip the script here. 
let's just say Brett came up to me. Sorry, you're on the front, you're on the second row, so you pick on spot, okay? So Brett comes up to me and he says, Matt, I must go to your house. I would be a little taken aback at first, and I'd be like, sure, you can come over to my house, because I like Brett, okay? So yeah, come on over to my house. So here's what would happen. If my wife was standing next to me, she'd be like, sure, come on over. But this inward panic mode would be, wah, 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 clean the house, clean the house, we can't see, you can't see that, we live in here. I mean, like, she's mopping stuff, burning things outside, she's got to get it perfect, okay? When you show up, she'd be like, <sighs> Excuse the house. It's never, it's never been this dirty. I'm like, liar. I tell people that sometimes. She's lying. We live here. It's usually gross because of me, not her. And so that would be the case. So what happens with Zacchaeus? There's a grace appointment with Jesus. God is seeking him out. What happens? He says, come on down. There's no go clean your house. No hide the bottles, no hide your life, no hide what's going on. He just said, I, he received him fully, and he said, come to my house, Lord. Received him joyfully. And what happens? The hate. Look in verse 7. He received Jesus. He's come to my house. I, I don't have time to clean it up. I just need you to come. I'm at a point where I need somebody to save me from my poor decisions and sins, so you just come to my house. It's, it, is, it is what it is. The dishes are in the sink. All the skeletons are out of the closet. It is what it is. And the other people, the religious leaders, the Pharisees are sitting over there doing the gossip. You know that. That stops when you walk in the room. You know what I mean? I know you've never had that happen to you before. I was like, hey, you know what so-and-so did? Oh, my gosh, so they are. What are you doing? Hey, bless your heart, Okay. You may have heard that before. So what happened is, and when they saw it, the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they grumbled. He's gone in to be a guest with a man who is a sinner? Now, in one sense, we cannot take sin lightly. And, and if we give them the benefit of the doubt, which doesn't really prove true for the religious leaders, they were concerned about sin, keeping people free from sin. I want you to know something. Sin is a grievous thing. It is a weight. It is, it's chains. It, are, it is something that will literally drag you down to hell. Your poor decisions and sin are like a weight. Now, I couldn't resist something. I thought, how can I talk about sin being a weight? I have a little illustration for you. This is a contraption that exists. It's an actual thing. And you're supposed to strengthen your neck with it. And this is just a seven and a half pound weight. The, the picture of the guy um, that I saw using this the first time. Oh, thank you, Andy. He's getting to make sure he documents my. Brought to you. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. <clears throat> this, this, this looks ridiculous, first off, okay? But this is a legitimate thing. I looked this up on the internet and found it. There's a picture of this guy, and he's got like this giant weight, and he's like, Ugh! I guess it's there to strengthen your neck, okay? But I want you to think about something that, that sins, you gotta take me seriously, it's okay. <laughs> it's all right. Sins and the weight of sin and our poor decisions, it's like a weight hanging around our neck. Can you imagine, first off, living your life with something like this on? Like right now, I really can't move my neck a whole lot, which just really feels odd. But can you imagine like going to the store, like, hey, how you doing? How, how are you doing? You doing okay? Imagine just doing basic things. Like and initially when I talked about using this, I thought about I'm going to bring a ladder on stage and I'll climb up it. And my parents were like, and my, and my wife was like, don't do it. 
You're going to hurt yourself. That's why, because you got this weight hanging around your neck, dragging you down. And I want you to know this. Jesus comes when he brings salvation because, I mean, know this. In this scene, it's at the end of Luke's gospel. He's headed to the cross. The cross, he will die to take the penalty for sins. Remember, he lived a sinless life, took the penalty for sins, that the weights and chains of sin might be lifted. And so here is what Jesus does. He comes, and he takes off the weight of our sin, and he breaks the chains that are binding us. And that sin is grievous and huge, But Jesus lifts the weights, and that's exactly what happens. We see Zacchaeus receiving him joyfully. The haters hate because of sin. Sin is real, but Jesus takes care of sin through the power of the cross and faith in his finished work. So I want you to get this. Jesus, there's unquenchable hope in Jesus because he comes to seek and save the lost, and Jesus lifts the weight of our poor decisions and sin. You know how it is. You can see there is no way. Sin will not help you get out of sin. But a lot of times when we're stuck in sin, we sin more to see if we can get out of that sin. Sin, it drags us down and ultimately will drag us down to hell. Sin that starts in greed can lead to hate. Hate can lead to so many different things, to, to lead to selfishness, to lead to this, to lead to bitterness, to lead to hardness of heart, to, leave, to lead to the foulness of heart that can happen. Sin is like a weight. It bears down on us. And in one sense, the Pharisees were right for saying how scandalous this is. But here's the good news. Jesus enters into our scandalous lives with grace. And he takes the burden of sin away, and he breaks the chains. You don't believe me? In prophesying about the cross in Isaiah 53, 5, it says this, but, and this is talking about Jesus in a prophecy from Isaiah, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Jesus bears the weight of our sin so we can know the gift of forgiveness in Christ. Not only that, he not only just removes the burden, he throws it away. Psalm 103, 11 and 12 says this, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the steadfast love towards those who fear him, to fear God. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. There is hope in Jesus because no matter what you've done, where you've been, how dark your sins are, how heavy your poor decisions are, whether they're your poor decisions or someone else's poor decisions, there is hope that the chains can be broken and new life can be found. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Jesus lifts the weight of the poor decisions and sin of our lives. And Jesus makes transformation possible. Look with me in verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, Half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. Remember, this guy was rich. This guy had a business about taking money from people, extorting people, and now there's a change of heart because Jesus met him. He received Jesus joyfully, and now 
Jesus has broken the chains where new life is possible and transformation is possible. He used to love money. Now he's given away half of his stuff. Think about that for a second. Go through your house and every other thing that you have, you gave away. That would be wild. Go in your bank account right now. Maybe you're waiting for the direct deposit. I don't know, okay? Write half of that and give it to the poor. How much would that hurt? That is what he said. He said, I have lived this way for too long. I'm going to give half of my money away. And then he says this, if I've defrauded anyone, I will give them back fourfold. This is a change of heart. That does not happen apart from a change of spirit, a new life coming in. And that is what we see here is that Jesus, when he comes and we believe in him by faith, we have our chains broken and obedience and a changed heart are possible. But a lot of us think, feel like we're on The Biggest Loser. There was an NBC show a while back where they take two psychotic fitness trainers and they take people who are very seriously overweight and they put them on this show and then over the course of a couple of months they make them lose massive amounts of weight through basically starvation and, and crazy amounts of exercise. Going back and seeing this show later, I used to, Amy and I watched it all the time when, when it was on originally, and, and going back and seeing the show, they would do updates, and almost all these contestants <laughs> gained the weight back. Now, I think a lot of us think of life that way. We think because of the poor decisions my parents made, because of the poor decisions my spouse or, or another person made, because of the poor decisions here, because of my poor decisions or because of my sin, nothing is going to change. There's no hope for change. I might get some, some, you know, some, some real you know, strong willpower and, and make the change for a while, maybe lose the 10 pounds or maybe stop struggling with this or maybe stop struggling with that, and, and I can change a little bit. But real transformation, real being different is not possible. And I want you to know something. By yourself, it's not. But in Christ, transformation is real. He took this guy, Zacchaeus, who loved money and steal, other, steal from other people, basically, by extortion. And now he has this guy who gives away half and then is refunding anyone he defrauded fourfold. Repentance, turn it from their sin, and a changed life is possible in Jesus Christ. Not only did he change his desires and his actions, but the Lord changes Zacchaeus' identity. Look in verse 9. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also, since he also is a son of Abraham. Do you remember the grumblers, the Pharisees? They're all over there going, Can you believe what Jesus is doing? Do you know how jacked up that guy is? Do you know that he steals money from people? Do you know he's working for this oppressive government? Jesus, do you know? I can't believe Jesus would go in and eat with somebody like that. I cannot believe it. And Jesus will further make them mad by saying this statement. Salvation has come to your house, Zacchaeus, and now you are a son of Abraham. The Pharisees would have lost their minds. I used to say that I used to go, I have a little brother. He's not little, he's taller than me now. And I, I'm, I'm sorry that I picked on him as much as I did when he was younger. He's five years younger than me. I used to know the exact button to push on my brother to make him go a ballistic. I just get in his face and I would just go, moron. He was, no! I mean, it was like, I mean, he was like 
the precious. I mean, he'd attack me, and like he would go for it. And my mom would be like, stop it, you know? In saying that they are sons of Abraham, the Pharisees would have been livid. Because what it means to be a son of Abraham is mean to be in the covenant people. And the Pharisees thought they were the covenant people or the, in the covenant community because they kept all the rules, but they were, had sin they'd never even dealt with. They had never even been, a, their sins had never, they've never felt conviction for their sin. But this guy, he feels conviction for, of his sin. And he's been in some bad, deep sins. And he's been against the people. And now he went from being an enemy of the people of God to being a son of of God. And that is what happens in Christ. And that's when he breaks the change. He doesn't just change your behavior and actions. He changes your identity. And in Christ, you go from being a rebel to a son or daughter. And then saying son of Abraham, that is the beauty of Christ. There's unquenchable hope in him. It just won't go away. Because he comes, he comes to seek and save the lost. He cares about you. Even in your darkest moments, he, while you were yet a sinner, he died for you. And not only that, there's unquenchable hope in Christ because he can lift the weights of your poor decisions and sin. And he also makes transformation possible. You don't have to stay the same. In fact, knowing him changes you and makes you different. Now, some of you have struggled for so long that you don't think transformation is possible. And let me make clear. That doesn't mean if you become, become a Christ follower that your life will change overnight and it will be just completely different at first. It might. But quite honestly, most of us struggle for many, 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 many years and really for the rest of our lives, but there is change. It's like falling up an escalator. Christian life is like falling up an escalator. You go up, but it's not graceful. You make, you make more, you become more, more like him. And, and, and that's the reason, because the escalator keeps going up, and even if you're falling, that's what it's like. But I want you to hear this really clearly, that transformation is possible. And there are examples. First off, if you want to know examples and know if it's true, be around, hang around the church for a while, and you'll see people who are just drastically different because of the gospel of Jesus. Secondly, we can look at church history, and we can see that there was a guy. The last song we sang that, that, that the band led us in was Amazing Grace. You ever heard that song before? It's kind of popular. It appears on every kind of genre ever, okay? It was, it's an R&B. R&B singers sing it. You probably, maybe, it's even, maybe it's even been on a rap album. I don't know. Country music singers sing it. Everybody sing it. If you've ever watched old American Idol episodes, usually that was the song that people would do when they were at the very beginning of the audition process, you know. Amazing grace. You know, you know what I'm talking about. That, that song is one of the most popular songs in the English language. It is one of the most popular hymns ever written. It was written by this guy. His name is John Newton. Now, John Newton was a pastor for 40 years. Before he was a pastor, he was a rough dude. He lived in England. Um, he was born in July 1725, and he died in December 1807. Now, don't let this picture fool you, but he was a rough customer. Let me tell you something about, oh, we kind of went dark here. <laughs> That's no problem. John was born, was born to a mom who was a believer and a father who was a sailor and a pagan, did not care about the things of God. Well, his mom died at an early age. His dad didn't, knew, didn't know what else to do, so he brought him on the ships with him. And as you can imagine, you know, there's a reason why people say, hey, he cusses like a sailor. Sailors are kind of rough. Not all of them, but a lot of them, they can get rough, okay? You've heard that before. And so he was around a bunch of sailors, and you know what happened? 
he became a rough customer. In fact, he became the roughest of customers. He became so bad, they were, he was kicked off of seafaring vessels regularly. And one such time, he was kicked off, and this was around in his, in his late teens, early 20s. He was kicked off and left on an island and for all intents and purposes became a slave. Now, he was working for the slave trade in England as well as, a, as, a, as a, someone who traded slaves, which is obviously wrong. But he became one himself. His destitution became so bad that he was actually, the, the other, the African slaves who were there took pity on him and gave him food because he was not even getting the same rations as they were getting. And so by providence, a friend of his father's, another sea, sea captain, ended up accidentally, accidentally landing on the same island that John was imprisoned as a slave. On his way back, and he was redeemed as a slave, and he got on the ship, headed back to England. As they were heading back to England, a storm arose. One of the fiercest storms he'd ever encountered all his time at sea. They spent about 48 hours fighting the sea. He worked down there pumping water out to make sure the boat did not fill with water, and they died. Now, remember, this is in the 1700s, 1800s. There's no Coast Guard coming. They're out there on their own in these raging seas. And as he was, took the helm and tried to keep the boat from capsizing, he had reached a crisis, crisis moment. He had heard the gospel from his mother, who's long died. He knew that where he was was a desperate, wretched state. His heart was filled with, cut, with, with, with anger and bitterness and hatefulness that would come out in his language. He did not care for the things of God. In fact, he mocked the things of God. And as a young man, as he stood on the helm of that ship, he came to a crisis point. And he realized his need for the grace of God. And so he ran as soon as, and this is, this is wonderful, the wonderful part of the story. The storm finally subsided and the people were saved. And that young man, John, ran to the scriptures. What would happen to him? He would eventually give his whole entire life to the ministry of the gospel. He pastored two churches for over 40 years, and he'd write so many hymns. And he became one of the two figures in England that led to the abolishment, that, 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 that moved Parliament to the abolishment of the slave trade in England. Him and William Wilberforce were responsible for ending the horrible practice of slavery in England. God took this guy who was a former slave trader, who was far from the things of God, whose heart was filled with wickedness and hate, and hit, it brought him to conviction of sins at a crisis point, and changed him into this minister of the gospel who wrote this song for a New Year's Day sermon, which is Amazing Grace, which was originally called Faith's Review and Expectation, which I think Amazing Grace is a better title. And he wrote this song, and he wrote these words. And he, he could write these words because he meant these words because he lived these words. He said this, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, and now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see the Lord Jesus can change lives. The Lord Jesus can lift the burden of sin because he paid the price for your sins. The Lord Jesus is seeking and calling you to repent and believe in him today. 
He, his grace is amazing. And the hope that is found in him is unquenchable. Why would you stay any longer in your wretched state apart from him? Why? Why would you spurn his grace? Why would you remain in sin and its folly and its weight that will eventually drag you down to hell? How will you not receive him joyfully? There is so much change. There's so much transformation. There is so much hope in Jesus. You don't have to stay where you are. Come where you are, and he will make you well. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And to put it in our vernacular, I thought it was over. I thought I was lost. I thought I had screwed up too much. I thought I had messed it all up. I thought my life was over. But it's not over yet because Jesus loved me while I was a screw up. And through his grace, I can know life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us in Christ. Thank you for your grace abounding to sinners. Thank you that you save wretches. Thank you that there is hope when we hit the end, the brick, the wall. Thank you that it's not over in Christ. God, call men and women to yourself. God, those who are believers, who we, we reach this place where we're just downtrodden. Let us know there's unquenchable hope in you that our life's not over, that, that you can forgive and you can heal and you can make us new and you can transform us. And the things that beat us up don't have to beat us up forever because there's power in the name of Jesus. And so, Lord, please work in our midst. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to get to conclude our service today. Jim, if you would come on up. And uh, let's see. Okay, that's cool. That's all good. Hey, we had we got bathing suits. Whatever you want to do, man. All right, hey, just avert, avert your attention from Jim for a second, okay? He's got to take his clothes off. All right, so let me tell you what happened today. In the 9 o'clock service, we got to invite or we got to baptize a, a, six-year-old, a six-year-old kid named Ryder who his parents were a little concerned about how young he was. And so what they what they did. They pushed him off about baptism. He had trusted Christ. But they pushed him off about baptism because they wanted to make sure he understood it. And finally, he says, Mom, Dad, I want to show everybody in my life that Jesus is boss. And I was like, awesome. That is so great. So we baptized him. So his dad baptized him this morning. It was great. Now, Jim, that, the Ryder was six. Jim, you're a little bit older than six, aren't you? Just a little bit. Okay. So Jim, Jim and, and talking to him, his belief in the gospel and his faith, he told me, he's like, listen, man, I'm getting older, and I don't know when I'm going to go see Jesus, but I want to do this. I want to proclaim my faith in him before I go see him. And I was like, yeah, all right. So he talked to us about that, and we're going to get Jim here in, in the baptismal pool, and we're going to baptize him in just a second. So, Jim, come on up, my man. <laughs> he's still working on it. It's all good. And so we're going to get him up here in a second. Yeah, until then, hey, check this video out while Jim is uh, getting ready for some bathing suit action here. So, Do I really <laughs> believe this word? 
The idea that all you need to do is make a decision, pray a prayer, sign a card, become a Christian, and keep your life as you know it. It's not true. You become a follower of Jesus, and you lose your life as you know it. New Testament Christianity is a narrow road that's not easy. It's a costly road of continual obedience, and I want to urge you to take that path. God clothes every single Christian with the power of His Spirit so that every single Christian might lead people to Christ. I want to ask, will you obey God's will for your life, no matter what it is? Let's believe this word even when it stretches us and then let's proclaim this word even when it costs us because this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That was a little promo while Jim was getting ready. That was a little promo for our Bible studies that are coming up. You can check it out up here. If you want to get, if you want to get involved in those Bible studies and follow me Bible studies, come in and check with me or one of the elders, and we'd love to get you in that. They're starting the week of Easter. So that doesn't mean they're going to start on the 16th. They're going to start that week afterwards, so start on the 17th and going forward. You don't want to miss this study. It's six weeks. So if you want to know about, more about connecting with Jesus and connecting with the journey, that's a great way to do it. And so, Jim? We're going to bring you over here. And so I told him before, this water is cold, okay? So before we get you in here, I want to ask you a question. Jim, is it your desire today to, in front of all these people, to pro proclaim that Jesus is Lord? Yes. It is. And you want to follow him in baptism. Well, it would be my honor. We're going to get you in here real quick, and we're going to dunk you real quick. We're going to have you facing towards me right here. And if you would help, I'll help you in. Yo, it's cold. You take it, uh, not yet. You're almost, you're partially immersed. So go ahead and sit on that if you would. Somehow. Somehow. Holy yes, indeed. Let's, let's push you over just a little bit. There you go. Perfect. Now, Jim, I baptize you, my brother, in the name, grab onto my arm there, sir. Yes, sir. On the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, let's get you out of this cold water, too. <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome to see you here. Yeah, that's cold. We'll get you dry. As Jim's getting dried off, I just want to. It's awesome. Huh? Well, right now, I guess we'll get you out of here. <laughs> we got to tell. As Jim's getting dried off, we want to uh, go ahead and remind you about that. Also, next week is Easter. We're going to be meeting at 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock again. There's some information, some Easter handouts, invitations in the back on the black table. I want you to go ahead and grab those. If you would, let's stand with these words of benediction. <clears throat> For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Go in that good news. You're dismissed. <laughs>